in honor of the Fight Life Feast Convention, our scripture reading this morning is drawn from the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day. In the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth, above the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle, creeping thing, and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, 
cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. You shall, it shall be for you food. Also, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So there was evening, and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. It will come as a shock to some of you, but there was a time when I was young. Um, it was half my life ago. I was 25. I was finishing my third theological degree, and quite frankly, I was sick of studying. I had been called into reform ministry, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to pastor. And the, the Presbyterian Church of America did not extend me a loving hand, so I had to kind of go searching. I sent out my resume to every Reformed church that was looking for a pastor. If, if it was a church in the history of the Reformation, it got my stuff. <laughs> and the squeaky wheel got grease. Uh, I started getting back from church's interest. And one church in particular, it was a somewhat sizable church in a uh, fairly urban area in a state I would have loved to live in. And they began to court me pretty heavy. They, they sent me stuff. They called me on the phone. And I was having these interviews with them. And they were definitely, you know, doing the come on down kind of thing. And to a young man of 25, that was, uh, that was very nice. I talked with their leadership. And, and they, they, they complimented me several times. You're a... You're a young man, but you're obviously very intellectual. You preach in an intellectual way. We'd love to have you kind of as a feather in our cap, a young man who's, who's well-educated. Okay, fine. My ego's about this size now. Um, the second time we got to talking, the eldership said, yeah, you, you were hard to find. We were looking for a reformed minister who, who wouldn't be like all the fundamentalists down here. I said, oh, really? What do you mean by that? Said, oh, well, you know, we're the, 
we're the intellectual church in this major urban area. We're surrounded by all these backward-thinking churches that, uh, you know, are, are fundamentalist. They've got these doctrines like, you know, Jesus is the only way to heaven. There's no other legitimate religion. We've got some Jews in our, our church. We've got a couple Muslims. We've got a few Jehovah's Witnesses. And we really pride ourselves in being a congregation where everybody can come and just worship God together because we, we know that, you know, anyone who's really well-educated would not think that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And I said, well, okay, well, here's all your stuff back. Uh, goodbye. But it was a, a major letdown because they had been they had been courting me. And actually, I could picture myself as pastor of this very large church. Um, and it had been a lot of wasted time. And I got to thinking to myself, you know, I really need to separate the wheat from the chaff here. There are churches that will court me because, yeah, when you're young and intellectual, people want you. I've discovered when you're old and intellectual, it's not very selling at all. But if, if you're old, young and intellectual, yes. So how do, I, how do I sort these churches out so that those that honestly don't want me and I don't want them, we just going to cut it off right at the beginning and not get anything going? Well, enter Genesis chapter 1. I thought to myself, what is the message I could preach that would be from God's word, I could do a good sermon on it, and anybody who did not want to hear God's word would tell me to go straight to blazes and it, you know, we wouldn't have to work with them. Well, I thought, well, let's preach on creation. I mean, that's it. That, that's the issue today. So I put together a sermon on this passage, and really all I did was ask the question, what does this passage establish? And the answer is it establishes a bunch of things. From tip to stern, we find these things established. One, we find God is established. At the very beginning of his narrative, Moses tells us God is there. He doesn't argue that God exists. He doesn't provide a philosophical stand that says God exists because of, just right at the beginning of this historical narrative, there is God. God is there before time. He's there before any created laws exist. Before anything that is, from our point of view, there's God. In the beginning, God. So the very first thing that the Bible presents is God is there. And God is all powerful. In the beginning, God creates. In fact, he creates everything that is anything. We are part of a closed system. We are part of a created order. God is outside of it, and there is nothing that God cannot do. And that is shown to us very clearly by the way he creates that which is. God speaks. He doesn't have to exert any energy. He doesn't have to uh, labor like a created being in any way. God just speaks, and everything leaps to exist at his command. That which is not becomes that which is just because God wants it. So God is. He is all-powerful, um, and he is the creator. 
man has lived on earth ever since God created him. And uh, since the fall, man has lost in many places and in many times an understanding of why things are. And he has invented many, many stories about why things are here. But right off the bat, Moses says, God created everything. If you can see it, if you can hear it, if you can touch it, if you can smell it, if it exists, well, God is the origin of it. There is nothing that you can bring into your orbit of thinking that God did not create. And not only that, God is what everything is dependent upon. God goes out of his way to demonstrate that early in his creative process, and you can find it on day one. What happens on day one? Well, God says, let there be light, and there is light, and he separates light from the darkness, and you have day and night, when does God create light sources? Sun, moon, and stars. Well, that's much later. So on the first day, you've got light shining in the darkness. Where's it coming from? It's not coming from a sun, moon, or a star. It's coming from God. It is totally, totally dependent on its creator. It doesn't have a source except God who created it. And God is saying something very significant by that. All of this is going to be absolutely dependent upon myself because I created it. And we are introduced to the wisdom of God. This chapter is poetic in sounding. It's not poetry. It's historical narrative, but it's very uplifted language. And it's an appropriate language for celebrating an incredibly orderly, incredibly wise, incredibly well-designed closed system. God creates on each day, and it's not a random creation. It is not some explosion where all atoms fly out and mingle together and ultimately merge together to be Carl Sagan. It's this orderly process where God looks at every little piece and he goes, that's good. I mean, that's good. That, that's wise. That works well. That's good. God is seen as a wise, all-powerful creator. Um, he is a moral being. When God says this is good, he is using a term which indicates this is morally good, just as much as it means this is wise and works well. You were born into this creation. Nobody gave you an option to come here. You just arrived. And you arrived in a closed system that was created by a God who is moral. You didn't get to choose that. It just happened to be when you came in. Theoretically, in a vacuum, and for argument's sake, you could have been born into a creation where God was amoral. And that, in fact, would be even more terrifying than if you'd been born into a creation where God was immoral. At least with a moral monster, you kind of know where you stand. But with an amoral God, there would be no morality of any type. But Genesis shows us from the very word go 
a God who is a master builder and one who cares about things being good. He has a moral code, a moral center. Everything that the Bible is going to present about God from here, things like God is righteous, he is holy, he is kind, all those things we were singing about in Psalm 103, all of it's built on the fact that God is a moral being. And God is a moral being. We are blessed by being created by a God who is good and wants to build good things. Uh, it demonstrates that death, decay, uh, corruption, suffering, all of that is not intrinsic to goodness or to the created order. Now that might have sounded a little highfalutin, so let me break it down. If you are a theistic evolutionist, or if you're just an evolutionist, you believe that creation has always included cancer. It has always included senility. It has always included accidents and tragedy. It has included uh, predators preying upon the weak. And all of this is part of the order intrinsically. So when God created creation, he looked down upon the poor helpless baby just born that got eaten by a tyrannosaur and said, yeah, that's good. I'm all for that. Genesis doesn't present that. Genesis presents what we know at an internal level, things like death, decay, and suffering, all of that is not good, and it is not required for creation of its nature. It is from outside of the original creation, and it's something dark and evil. Genesis presents that. The creation was good. No suffering, no death. Every animal is given the fruit of the plants to eat. Not the plants, but the fruit of the plants. So that Tyrannosaurus is actually eating gourds. In creation, everything is good and healthy and life-bearing and pleasant. That is established by this text. Um... God is the owner, is established by this text. If you are a theistic evolutionist, or an evolutionist, but you believe that a ground of being, a God, exists, why do you care? I mean, honestly... You know, okay, you're a theist, you believe God's out there, but what, what's the big deal? Because God is somewhat judgmental. God never looks at us and says, I have some loving suggestions for your life, and it might be a good idea if you tried them out. God always approaches us like he thinks he owns us or something. And it turns out he does. Genesis chapter 1 establishes that God is the owner of creation because he built it. When you build something, 
when you labor of your own effort and make something, it's yours, right? If, if you were to build a boat and I were to come take it, you would be somewhat upset, and even more so because you built the thing. Well, God built creation. And because he built creation, he has the right to dispose of creation as he sees fit because he's the owner of it. And that includes humanity as much as anything else. He has the right to, to use it as he sees fit, and he has the right to define it. All the way through this passage, we see God saying, that's a tree. That's the grass of the field. That's day, that's night. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because God is giving a definition to the essence of the things he has made. When God points to darkness and says that's night, it's night. It's not purple. It's not advanced consciousness. It's not ice cream. God has defined it. This is a thing, and that's what it is. This is a treat. Now, you're from the Western tradition of science, and so you probably think it's kind of a no-duh thing, but in the history of philosophy and really all the soft sciences, the issue of something actually being something and being required to be that something and not being able to be something else has really been up in the air to be debated. The Hindu says, I am a man, but I was once a dog. I may someday be a tree. Uh, I may be a spirit, and I may ascend to godhood, but godhood is not the Brahman. I could be all of these things because my essence is mutable. The postmodernist says, you know, I've got a great beard, but I could be a girl. It'd be totally okay, because things don't have to be what they are. That issue has been with humanity from the beginning. Why do we say a dog is a dog? Why do we say a car is a car? What foundation do we have for saying that? Well, in many, many philosophical systems, we have none. But this chapter establishes God made it, therefore God owns it, and God can say what it is. And God does that. He is a wise God, an orderly God, a creating God, so he instills essence and truth into the things he made. A cat has a purpose. I know some of you don't think so, but it does. God has given that cat purpose. God has defined it. God has done the same thing with people. When he creates man, he says, that's man. Male and female, they are. And so they are. Because he is the ground of being and he has the right to be. This is what this chapter establishes. He is the initiator of the suzerain covenant. That is, he is the greater in a covenant between a greater and a lesser. And you see that in this text because the text is set up like a covenant. If you have read the Lord's service, 
the author there does a very good job of defining what an ancient understanding of a covenant is. He demonstrates that it really has five things. And if you see these five things in a relationship, then you got a covenant. The things are the greater comes to the lesser. The warlord comes to the city that he wants to incorporate. And these things happen. The warlord says, I would like a country to rule over, and uh, you look like a nice part of it. But if I come in and I burn your city down to take it, there's nothing for me to rule. So you and I need to enter into an, a relationship, and this is how the relationship will be established. Point one, the greater will take hold of the lesser. He is the greater, after all. In the ancient world, you had covenants between equals, but this kind of covenant is not like that. You've got a greater and a lesser. Well, the greater initiates it. He takes hold of the lesser. And point two, he separates the lesser from what the lesser has been part of. Uh, you, all, all, everything you've been part of now is separated, and you're now separated to me. That's point two. Uh, point three, the greater does at least the grand majority of the speaking. It is not always that the lesser says nothing, but generally that happens. In a greater and lesser covenant, it is the greater who speaks, and that demonstrates that he is the greater. The greater establishes signs that talk about the covenant that's being established, signs and seals that will represent the covenant. And the greater establishes what he will do for the lesser and what the lesser will do for the greater, and he defines that relationship. So think about this in terms of creation. There is absolutely nothing, and then God says, let there be. Can you have a greater taking hold than that? You know, I'm going to bring you into existence. That, that, that's taking hold. And I'm going to separate you from non-existence. So that's point two. And I'm going to speak it into existence. God said, God said, God said. I'm going to give symbols that speak of my power. Now, existence can be seen that way. Every time a tree sees itself, it knows it's created. But think about the stars, the lights, the moon, the star. What is that for in creation? Well, it's for marking seasons and years. They're symbols. And then uh, the greater will establish how things are supposed to work. So the greater looks at creation and says, birds fly. Creeping things creep on the ground. Cattle roam about. Fish, you swim. Go and multiply. So an ancient reader reading this text would say, God has entered into a covenant with creation itself to be its king, to be its God. It will respond to him as his people, his servants. All of creation is in covenant with God. But this plays out again with the creation of man. God takes hold of dirt. Now, I know it's, this imagery is in the next chapter, but God takes hold of dirt. We start off nothing but dirt. And God separates that dirt that he's taken hold of. He separates it from the rest of the dirt. 
And God breathes his spirit into that person, and he speaks to him. And in fact, man doesn't do any much speaking here. Only God speaks. And God says, the way our relationship is going to go forward is you're going to be my under-shepherd. You're going to shepherd creation. Uh, you're going to be fruitful and multiply, which, by the way, could have been a way man could have broken the covenant. But man has never had a problem with that one. So man did not break the, the original covenant that way. But he was given this, this marching order, this is what you're going to do. And the promise was, I'll give you life, and I'll be your God. And there were signs given. There was the tree of life, whereby when men ate of it, they would maintain their perpetual existence. Man was not immortal in and of himself, even in the creation. He was dependent on God, just like the light on the first day was dependent on God. And he would see that every time he ate from the tree of life. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which he wasn't supposed to partake of. Both of these things were signs. Every time man looked at them, he would remember, okay, I'm in a covenant with a greater. I'm in a covenant with God. These things remind me of it. So ancient readers would read this text and go, God is entering into covenant with all creation, and then he is especially entering into covenant with a certain part of it. He's entering into covenant with man, and he even calls man God's image. He says it here, and then he'll also say it in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, this establishes that God wants to be in relationship with man, and he is in relationship with man. That, that's from the get-go. There is no human being who is not in a relationship with God. There are billions who are not in a saving relationship with God, but there is nobody who is not in a relationship with God. God creates man that way. Remember what I said about you entered into a creation where God is moral and how wonderful that is? Um, you didn't have to enter into a creation where God had any care of you. God could have created you and not entered into covenant with you because he just created, but he didn't really want a relationship. And there is a word for this kind of religion. It's called deism. And lots of very, very smart people have belonged to it. The religion here says that God is the creator. We can't miss that God created. Uh, everything works together so well. It's obviously the work of master creator. But God doesn't do anything but watch his creation. He steps back and lets things run, and the only thing that's going on is God's watching. He's fascinated by what's happening, but he doesn't intervene. So if you want to pray, that's okay. God will watch it, but he's not going to do anything. There are lots and lots of people who believe the world is like that. Why is the world not like that? It's because God initially entered into covenant with man. The greater bound himself to a relationship with the lesser. God will intervene because he is in relationship with man. You didn't have to find that when you came here, but you did. And this text establishes that. Before you ever did anything, God had entered into covenant with your forefathers, and he will keep it. He had entered into this relationship, and this is what you came into. 
It establishes that man is lower than God, but he's higher than all the rest of the creatures. Um, you are truly valuable in a naturalistic, scientific worldview. You're worth about 6,000 bucks. If all your body parts were sold, that's about what they would get. But that's as, as valuable as you get because you are a part of a naturalistic world that does not establish that you're in the image of God. You're a random part of creation that just happened to be. And yeah, I mean, honestly, if we cut you up and split you out, we can get some value from you, but that's pretty much it. You're no more valuable than anything else in creation. And honestly, a lot of stuff is a lot more valuable than you, but you got your place. In this text, God establishes that he views you as more important than anything else in the world. I find that very comforting. I'm very glad to hear that. This text establishes that uh, we have a, a given purpose. We are supposed to be under shepherds and to take care of the earth. And every day we wake up in the morning, we are able to look in the mirror and say, there is a reason why I'm here. Are you aware of the growing epidemic of people in our world who can't do that? It's one of the things that counselors talk about all the time. And remember, my third hat is I'm a pastoral counselor. Um, in this current age, most people have a real hard time saying, this is why I'm here. And it has a huge impact on them. Do you find it significant when you wake up in the morning and look in the mirror, you can say, there is a reason I'm breathing and there's a reason I'm going to live today. Is that important to you? Well, it's important to human beings at a very gut level. And if you don't have that, you begin to think thoughts like, why should I bother being here? Um, it, it, it means nothing. So why don't I just take my own life? You, you might see an epidemic of suicide, like you're seeing. But this text establishes that God gave man purpose. Rick Warren is not a great guy, but he sold a huge <clears throat> parcel of books completely based on the name of the book. The Purpose Driven Life. The entirety of humanity read the title and said, here's, your mo here's my money, take my money. Because they wanted to feel purposeful. Our text establishes that. Uh, it establishes man as the lesser in the covenant, but he is in the covenant. You have the promise of relating to God. Um, and you find that being in the image of God, which again, Moses will say twice, you also have a moral nature. You are able to tell what is good and what is evil. The first class I took at EKU as a college student was sociology, and the very first thing we did in that class 
was we defined the terms good and evil. And without this kind of worldview, um, good had to be whatever it was the great majority of people wanted, and evil had to be that which the grand majority of people didn't want to have happen. That was the definition. Uh, I raised my hand and I said, well, does that mean that the Nazi regime was good at the beginning of the war because everybody wanted it, and it was bad at the end of the war because it lost the war? And the professor said, yep, yeah, you got it. That is exactly how it works in sociology. What is good is what people want. What is bad is what they don't want. That's as far as good and evil gets. Our text establishes that's not where it gets. But without this kind of worldview, you have a very hard time saying why it doesn't go any further than that. You could be uh, Plato, who is one of the world's smartest guys, and he's looking for the highest virtue, and the only place he can get to is Eros, where he says, well, you know, what's good among people is that we relate to one another and we can feed off each other. Eros means you like me because you feed off me. I give you things that you like, and it's a mutual relationship. I also feed off you, and we devour one another. That's the highest virtue that man can have, Eros, says Plato, a very, very smart guy. The reason he can only go there is because he doesn't have this text in hand. It is that God has created, he has created wisely, he has created good, he has created man in his image, he has created man in covenant with him, that you can finally come around and say, there is a ground of being and I can know what is good and what is evil. So that's what this text establishes. You know, you might have thought it was long hearing it read, but now when you see what's in it, we could have gone on. I mean, I'm just kind of hitting the highlights. This text establishes all of that. But then the next question has to be asked, is any of that establishable, any of it, if this text isn't true? On what basis can you establish that God exists? Anybody want to stand up and give a good defense of the existence of God? I probably could, to be honest. There's some philosophical defense of that. Even without the Bible, we are in a world of causality, and if you got everything coming from a cause, coming from a cause, coming from a cause, coming from a cause, there has to be something back there that's uncaused, and it starts everything. So throughout history, even those without Genesis have said there's a God. So you can kind of do that. But let's go a little further. Establish that God is moral. You live in a world that contains parasites that only exist if they eat people's eyes. There's a worm in Africa that literally lives off eating eyes. And God is the creator. So uh, establish that God is moral in such a world. You have, uh, you know, natural disasters that wipe people out in an instant. You have 
the the existence of evil uh, establish for me that God is good. Martin Luther said it doesn't take any faith to believe that God exists, and he's right. He said what it takes Christian faith to believe is that God is good, and he's right. We know that God is good because God has revealed himself to us, and the primary way is through the word. Uh, it points to Christ, which is the effective way, but establish that God is good without any of this. You will not be able to do that. Establish that God is wise, or establish that you mean anything at all. Prove to me that you are worth more than 6,000 bucks. Can you do it? Is there any ground for you to stand on if this is not true? Now, someone may take exception to what I'm saying, and they might say, Pastor Westbrook, you are making this far too black and white. What is really happening here is we have an allegorical passage. The passage isn't true the way you're defining truth because your concrete thinking, rock-ribbed primitive, uh, but it's all allegory. It, it's this story that isn't true, but it, it points to great truths. All right, let's take that on. If all of this is allegorical, then doesn't that mean that everything we're talking about is only allegorically true? There's a God, allegorically. He's a symbol for great goodness. He doesn't exist, but allegorically he's out there. God is symbolically all-powerful. You can't really depend upon him. He's not doing anything. But there is this, this Jungian archetype of God that you can kind of have a head trip about because all of this is allegorical. Isn't it neat? That's really where you are if this is not true. The entire rest of the Bible is built on this. It assumes this. It never goes back and rebuilds it because it doesn't have to. Several places it does point back and say, remember that, though. And so when you cut this out, everything else in the Bible just falls into the mud. Now, somebody else raises their hand. They are an old earth creationist. And they say, well, Pastor Russ, I do believe in a historical Adam. Um, not so sure if death didn't predate him or anything, but I do believe in a historical Adam. And I believe that these events happened, but I, I don't believe that the timing of them happened the way you read it naturally. I, I think... There's billions of years have been pushed into this passage. You'll never see it if you don't assume it, but it's there. And, and I believe, right? Well, it depends. The New Testament, the book of Titus, defines God as God who cannot lie. At least that's the way we translate it. The Greek would be more rightly, literally translated, the not lying God. So Paul says it is literally of the essence of God that he is always true. God doesn't lie because literally that's the opposite of his nature. God can be shrewd with the wicked. The Psalms tell us that. 
But shrewdness is not deceit. They're not synonymous. When God is God to us, says Paul, God is always truthful because that is of the essence of Godhood. Take a moment and just kind of think about that. Anybody really happy about that? God will never lie to you. He may absolutely shock you with his honesty, but he will literally never lie to you because it is not of the essence of God to lie. So, okay, it's kind of true. It's not really true, but it kind of is. Isn't that enough? Well, what do you have... If, if you're looking for some way to fit the modern mythology of evolution into the Bible, um, what, what does that do? Well, it makes God a liar, and I'm already building that one up. I really liked in Sunday school, I was asking leading questions, and Aaron said, I'll play along, I'll do this, I know what you're looking for. supposed to be a secret don't do that um it makes god a liar but more than that it makes god an outsider i built up the fact that god is the creator and on the basis of creating he owns well if god really didn't have anything much to do with creation god isn't really the owner right I mean, for for what purpose can you say God is the owner if all this stuff kind of came into existence without him? God is an outsider and an invader. And so God now comes to you, uh, uh, something not really from his hand, and says, I'm God and I'm going to take over. I'm literally going to be a warlord invading and claiming and conquering you. Is that moral? God really doesn't deserve to be God in this scenario. He has come in as a conqueror. He is crushing something else. And really, you could build a moral case that it is right to resist him. And if you don't believe me, start thinking about some of the movies and some of the books that have been produced in the last hundred years that have the theme of, It is noble for man to resist God. Can you think of some examples of this? They're easy to find if you start thinking about it. Who is God to tell me what to do? He is an invader. I will establish my dignity by overthrowing this invader. If God is not your creator, If you are not absolutely dependent upon him for your next breath and next heartbeat, why ain't that true? But the truth is, he is and you are. But if this isn't true, that's true. So that's the price you pay when you play games with this text. You end up with a non-existent God or an allegorical God, and you certainly end up with a lying God and one who is not actually moral. That is a high, high price to pay to try to maintain intellectual vitality in the eyes of the world.
Does anybody want to guess the kind of responses I got to this sermon? <laughs> I got churches writing me and telling me, who do you think you are? And that's exactly what I wanted. I, I did not want to pastor those churches. Thanks be to God, there were a lot of churches out there that said, this is the truth, would you please come? The believing church still believes. Thanks be to God. <laughs>